Section 7 of Chapter 20 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 20, Section 7. In the first place, the Whigs were on principle attached to the reigning dynasty. In their view the revolution had been not merely necessary, not merely justifiable, but happy and glorious. It had been the triumph of their political theory. When they swore allegiance to William, they swore without scruple or reservation, and they were so far from having any doubt about his title that they thought it the best of all titles. The Tories, on the other hand, very generally disapproved of that vote of the convention which had placed him on the throne. Some of them were at heart Jacobites, and had taken the oath of allegiance to him only that they might be able to injure him. Others, though they thought it their duty to obey him as king in fact, denied that he was king by right, and if they were loyal to him, were loyal without enthusiasm. There could, therefore, be little doubt on which of the two parties it would be safer for him to rely. In the second place, as to the particular matter on which his heart was at present set, the Whigs were, as a body, prepared to support him strenuously, and the Tories were, as a body, inclined to thwart him. The minds of men were at this time much occupied by the question in what way the war ought to be carried on. To that question the two parties returned very different answers. An opinion had during many months been growing among the Tories that the policy of England ought to be strictly insular and that she ought to leave the defence of Flanders and the Rhines to the States-General, the House of Austria, and the Princes of the Empire, that she ought to carry on hostilities with vigour by sea, but to keep up only such an army as might, with the help of the militia, be sufficient to repel an invasion. It was plain that, if this system were adopted, there might be an immediate reduction of the taxes which pressed most heavily on the nation. But the Whigs maintained that this relief would be dearly purchased. Many thousands of brave English soldiers were now in Flanders, yet the Allies had not been able to prevent the French from taking Mons in 1691, Namur in 1692, Charleroi in 1693. If the English troops were withdrawn, it was certain that Ostend, Ghent, Liège, Brussels would fall. The German princes would hasten to make peace, each for himself. The Spanish Netherlands would probably be annexed to the French monarchy. The United Provinces would be again in as great peril as in 1672, and would accept whatever terms Louis might be pleased to dictate. In a few months he would be at liberty to put forth his whole strength 
against our island. Then would come a struggle for life and death. It might well be hoped that we should be able to defend our soil even against such a general and such an army as had won the Battle of Landon. But the fight must be long and hard. How many fertile counties would be turned into deserts? How many flourishing towns would be laid in ashes before the invaders were destroyed or driven out? One triumphant campaign in Kent and Middlesex would do more to impoverish the nation than ten disastrous campaigns in Brabant. It is remarkable that this dispute between the two great factions was, during seventy years, regularly revived as often as our country was at war with France, that England ought never to attempt great military operations on the continent, continued to be a fundamental article of the creed of the Tories, till the French Revolution produced a complete change in their feelings. As the chief object of William was to open the campaign of 1694 in Flanders with an immense display of force, it was sufficiently clear to whom he must look for assistance. In the third place, the Whigs were the stronger party in Parliament. The general election of 1690, indeed, had not been favourable to them. They had been, for a time, a minority but they had ever since been constantly gaining ground. They were now in number a full half of the lower house, and their effective strength was more than proportioned to their number, for in energy, alertness, and discipline they were decidedly superior to their opponents. Their organization was not indeed so perfect as it afterwards became, but they had already begun to look for guidance to a small knot of distinguished men which was long afterwards widely known by the name of the Junto. There is perhaps no parallel in history, ancient or modern, to the authority exercised by this council during twenty troubled years over the Whig body. The men who acquired that authority in the days of William and Mary, continued to possess it, without interruption, in office and out of office, till George I was on the throne. One of these men was Russell. Of his shameful dealings with the court of Saint-Germain, we possess proofs which leave no room for doubt. But no such proofs were laid before the world till he had been many years dead. If rumours of his guilt got abroad, they were vague and improbable. They rested on no evidence. They could be traced to no trustworthy author, and they might well be regarded by his contemporaries as Jacobite calumnies. What was quite certain was that he sprang from an illustrious house which had done and suffered great things for liberty and for the Protestant religion, that he had signed the invitation of the 30th of June, that he had landed with the deliverer at Torbay, that he had in Parliament on all occasions spoken and voted as a zealous Whig, 
that he had won a great victory, that he had saved his country from an invasion, and that since he had left the Admiralty, everything had gone wrong. We cannot therefore wonder that his influence over his party should have been considerable. But the greatest man among the members of the Junto, and in some respects the greatest man of that age, was the Lord Keeper Summers. He was equally eminent as a jurist and as a politician, as an orator and as a writer. His speeches have perished, but his state papers remain, and are models of terse, luminous, and dignified eloquence. He had left a great reputation in the House of Commons, where he had, during four years, been always heard with delight, and the Whig members still looked up to him as their leader, and still held their meetings under his roof. In the great place to which he had recently been promoted, he had so borne himself that, after a very few months, even faction and envy had ceased to murmur at his elevation. In truth, he united all the qualities of a great judge, an intellect comprehensive, quick and acute, diligence, integrity, patience, suavity. In counsel, the calm wisdom which he possessed in a measure rarely found among men of parts so quick and of opinions so decided as his, acquired for him the authority of an oracle. The superiority of his powers appeared not less clearly in private circles. The charm of his conversation was heightened by the frankness with which he poured out his thoughts. His good temper and his good breeding never failed. His gesture, his look, his tones were expressive of benevolence. His humanity was the more remarkable because he had received from nature a body such as is generally found united with a peevish and irritable mind. His life was one long malady. His nerves were weak, his complexion was livid, his face was prematurely wrinkled. Yet his enemies could not pretend that he had ever once, during a long and troubled public life, been goaded, even by sudden provocation, into vehemence inconsistent with the mild dignity of his character. All that was left to them was to assert that his disposition was very far from being so gentle as the world believed, that he was really prone to the angry passions, and that sometimes, while his voice was soft, and his words kind and courteous, his delicate frame was almost convulsed by suppressed emotion. It will perhaps be thought that this reproach is the highest of all eulogies. The most accomplished men of those times have told us that there was scarcely any subject on which Summers was not competent to instruct and to delight. He had never travelled, and in that age an Englishman who had not travelled was generally thought incompetent to give an opinion on works of art. But connoisseurs familiar with the masterpieces of the Vatican and of the Florentine gallery allowed 
that the taste of summers in painting and sculpture was exquisite philology was one of his favourite pursuits he had traversed the whole vast range of polite literature ancient and modern he was at once a munificent and severely judicious patron of genius and learning locke owned opulence to summers by summers addison was drawn forth from a cell in a college in distant countries the name of summers was mentioned with respect and gratitude by great scholars and poets who had never seen his face he was the benefactor of leclerc he was the friend of philicaja neither political nor religious differences prevented him from extending his powerful protection to merit hicks the fiercest and most intolerant of all the non-jurors obtained by the influence of summers permission to study teutonic antiquities in freedom and safety vertu a strict roman catholic was raised by the discriminating and liberal patronage of summers from poverty and obscurity to the first rank among the engravers of the age the generosity with which summers treated his opponents was the more honourable to him because he was no waverer in politics from the beginning to the end of his public life he was a steady whig his voice was indeed always raised when his party was dominant in the state against violent and vindictive counsels but he never forsook his friends even when their perverse neglect of his advice had brought them to the verge of ruin his powers of mind and his acquirements were not denied even by his detractors the most acrimonious tories were forced to admit with an ungracious snarl which increased the value of their praise that he had all the intellectual qualities of a great man and that in him alone among his contemporaries brilliant eloquence and wit were to be found associated with the quiet and steady prudence which ensures success in life it is a remarkable fact that in the foulest of all the many libels that were published against him he was slandered under the name of cicero as his abilities could not be questioned he was charged with irreligion and immorality that he was heterodox all the country vicars and fox-hunting squires firmly believed but as to the nature and extent of his heterodoxy there were many different opinions he seems to have been a low churchman of the school of tillotson whom he always loved and honoured and he was like tillotson called by bigots a presbyterian an arian a socinian a deist and an atheist the private life of this great statesman and magistrate was malignantly scrutinized and tales were told about his libertinism which went on growing till they became too absurd for the credulity even of party spirit at last long after he had been condemned to flannel and kitchen broth a wretched courtesan who had probably never seen him except in the stage box at the theatre 
when she was following her vocation below in a mask, published a lampoon in which she described him as the master of a harem more costly than the great Turks. There is, however, reason to believe that there was a small nucleus of truth round which this great mass of fiction gathered, and that the wisdom and self-command which Summers never wanted in the Senate, on the judgment seat, at the council board, or in the society of wits, scholars, and philosophers, were not always proof against female attractions. Another director of the Whig party was Charles Montague. He was often, when he had risen to power, honours, and riches, called an upstart by those who envied his success. That they should have called him so may seem strange, for few of the statesmen of his time could show such a pedigree as his. He sprang from a family as old as the conquest. He was in the succession to an earldom, and was, by the paternal side, cousin of three earls. But he was the younger son of a younger brother, and that phrase had, ever since the time of Shakespeare and Raleigh, and perhaps before their time, been proverbially used to designate a person so poor as to be broken to the most abject servitude, or ready for the most desperate adventure. Charles Montague was early destined for the church, was entered on the foundation of Westminster, and after distinguishing himself there by skill in Latin versification, was sent up to Trinity College, Cambridge. At Cambridge the philosophy of Descartes was still dominant in the schools, but a few select spirits had separated from the crowd and formed a fit audience round a far greater teacher. Conspicuous among the youths of high promise who were proud to sit at the feet of Newton was the quick and versatile Montague. Under such guidance the young student made considerable proficiency in the severe sciences. But poetry was his favourite pursuit, and when the university invited her sons to celebrate royal marriages and funerals, he was generally allowed to have surpassed his competitors. His fame travelled to London. He was thought a clever lad by the wits who met at Will's, and the lively parody which he wrote in concert with his friend and fellow student Pryor on Dryden's Hind and Panther was received with great applause. All this time Montague's wishes pointed towards the church. At a later period, when he was a peer with twelve thousand a year, when his villa on the Thames was regarded as the most delightful of all suburban retreats, when he was said to revel in toquet from the imperial cellar, and in soups made out of birds' nests, brought from the Indian Ocean and costing three guineas apiece, his enemies were fond of reminding him that there had been a time when he had eked out by his wits an income of barely fifty pounds, when he had been happy with a trencher of mutton chops and a flagon of ale from the college buttery, 
and when a tithe pig was the rarest luxury for which he had dared to hope. The revolution came and changed his whole scheme of life. He obtained, by the influence of Dorset, who took a peculiar pleasure in befriending young men of promise, a seat in the House of Commons. Still, during a few months, the needy scholar hesitated between politics and divinity. But it soon became clear that, in the new order of things, parliamentary ability must fetch a higher price than any other kind of ability, and he felt in parliamentary ability he had no superior. He was in the very situation for which he was peculiarly fitted by nature, and during some years his life was a series of triumphs. Of him, as of several of his contemporaries, especially of Mulgrave and of Spratt, it may be said that his fame has suffered from the folly of those editors who down to our own time have persisted in reprinting his rhymes among the works of the British poets. There is not a year in which hundreds of verses as good as any that he ever wrote are not sent in for the Newdigate Prize at Oxford and for the Chancellor's Medal at Cambridge. His mind had indeed great quickness and vigour, but not that kind of quickness and vigour which produces great dramas or odes, and it is most unjust to him that his loan of honour and his epistle on the Battle of the Boyne should be placed side by side with Comus and Alexander's feast. Other eminent statesmen and orators, Walpole, Pulteney, Chatham, Fox, wrote poetry not better than his, but fortunately for them their metrical compositions were never thought worthy to be admitted into any collection of our national classics. It has long been usual to represent the imagination under the figure of a wing, and to call the successful exertions of the imagination flights. One poet is the eagle, another is the swan, a third modestly compares himself to the bee. But none of these types would have suited Montague. His genius may be compared to that pinion which, though it is too weak to lift the ostrich into the air, enables her, while she remains on the earth, to outrun hound, horse, and dromedary. If the man who possesses this kind of genius attempts to ascend the heaven of invention, his awkwardness and unsuccessful efforts expose him to derision. But if he will be content to stay in the terrestrial region of business, he will find that the faculties which would not enable him to soar into a higher sphere will enable him to distance all his competitors in the lower. As a poet, Montague could never have risen above the crowd. But in the House of Commons, now fast becoming supreme in the state, and extending its control over one executive department after another, the young adventurer soon obtained a place very different from the place which he occupies among men of letters. At thirty, 
he would gladly have given all his chances in life for a comfortable vicarage and a chaplain's scarf. At thirty-seven he was First Lord of the Treasury, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and a Regent of the Kingdom, and this elevation he owed not at all to favour, but solely to the unquestionable superiority of his talents for administration and debate. End of section 7